Well, good evening. Um, as uh, Pastor Wayne mentioned, my name is Tom Grossma, and uh, serve at the, as a pastor, senior pastor of First Christian Reformed Church in Byron Center, just a little south of you. I told somebody it's, it's a little warmer down there from the south. Um, but uh, it's really great to be with you. Um, I know many of you, or at least have uh, met many of you over the years. Uh, Pastor Dale and I uh, have been good friends for a long time, uh, way back to our days in seminary at Westminster in California, and uh, have remained friends, uh, close friends. And uh, so it's really a great joy to be here. I just want to mention one other thing before we read the scriptures together. just want to say you've been a blessing to me already. Um, you know, sometimes the Lord has to get you out of your um, the environment that you're used to, and uh, so tonight being with you and being with another congregation and just being down here and singing with you and uh, reciting the creed together, um, you know, it's just brought refreshment to me, and uh, I want to thank you for that. So we're turning tonight in God's Word to Revelation 19, and uh, we're going to be reading together verses 11 through 21, the end of the chapter. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. And as we read, remember that this is God's Word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their names gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, dear people of God, um, a little bit earlier in the service, of course, we recited together the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed, along with the other historic creeds of the Christian church often end saying something about the return of Jesus. And as we recited the creed tonight, we recited that Christ indeed is coming again. And that is 
what we have pictured for us here in Revelation 19. We have pictured for us the return of Christ. In fact, the entire chapter is about the return of Jesus. As the book of Revelation kind of comes to a climax, the picture or scene turns toward the future, toward the coming of Jesus. So the early parts of the chapter talk about the great hallelujahs that will be spoken when Jesus comes back. The middle part of the chapter talks about, um, talks about the great wedding feast that is coming when Jesus the bridegroom returns and we the bride are united with Christ and we celebrate for an eternity with the Lord Jesus. But the latter part of the chapter that we're looking at tonight gives us a bit more detailed picture of the judgment and salvation that Jesus will bring when He comes again. And in some senses, it's a frightening picture because the image that is captured in this chapter is of Jesus as a warrior, as a judge. But it's also a comforting picture because we cannot forget, as one of the great historic Reformed confessions tells us, that our judge who is coming is also our Savior. The one who is coming to judge the world is the one who has died for us, the one who has already been judged in our place. And so this passage encourages us to look up, encourages us not to be afraid, but in fact to hold our eyes up as our Deliverer is coming to save us. The first thing we want to notice with you tonight as we look at these verses is the image of the coming Christ. It's Jesus who is coming as this chapter describes Him. And we see a few different things about Jesus here in this passage. First of all, His appearance. So He comes, as verse 11 tells us, riding on a white horse. John has this image, Behold, I saw the heavens open, and there was a white horse, and there was one sitting on it. The early church would have understood this image. Uh, Jesus on a white horse. Julius Caesar returned victorious from war riding a white horse. And so a white horse in the, in the eyes of the early church and, and for us as well carries the picture of conquest and victory. And what an image change it is for Jesus from His first coming to His second coming. So he came on the first coming, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble and meek and servant-like, to lay down his life. But here, Jesus comes conquering, victorious, because he has laid down his life for us, only to rise again three days later. The text tells us that his eyes are like blazing fire. In other words, his eyes can burn a hole through you. So he has a heart-piercing gaze in which he is to see what is written on our life and written on our hearts. On his head are many crowns or many diadems. Not one crown, not ten crowns as you see in other parts of Revelation and other images. But on his head are many crowns which show his universal reign and lordship. He comes dressed in a robe, 
that is dipped in blood. Chapter 14 of Revelation, a parallel passage, I think, reveals to us that the blood that Jesus' robe is dipped in, in this case, is not His own blood. It's, it's not His own blood that stains the robe, but it's the stains of His enemy's blood. And in fact, you see that in verse 15, that the stains are due to Him treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He treaded that winepress, didn't He, as He made His way through Gethsemane and then on to Calvary, and now He crushes His enemies in it as God's wrath is poured out on them. And then one final picture of His appearance, and that is out of His mouth comes a sword. Again, this is an image of Christ, and you can go all the way back to chapter 1 and see sort of parallel images that this is Jesus that is spoken about. Well, you not only have His appearance here, but we also have some names that describe what Jesus is like. And so look at verse 11, the very first name. The one who was sitting on this white horse is called Faithful and True. His promises are true. His word is true. His testimony and gospel are true. But friends, in this instance, here in in Revelation 19, faithful and true also speaks or applies to His justice. That when He comes to judge, He judges rightly. He judges fairly. There is never a miscarriage of justice when it comes to God or when it comes to Christ. When He comes to judge, He will always judge in the right way. He has a second name, verse 12, and this is a name that only He knows. No one knows but Himself. Kind of say, well, what is that name? I'd love to know what that name is. And again, only Jesus knows that name. But it says something about Christ. It speaks to the truth that Jesus is someone who is more than we can ever fathom. And Jesus also is someone that you can never control. In the Bible, when somebody gives a name, it's, it's a way of having authority over them. So a parent gives their child a name, and there's certain authority wrapped up in that. Well, here is a name that no one knows but Jesus Himself. You cannot control Christ. He is far above us. He has a third name, verse 13. It is the Word of God. It reminds us, of course, of John 1. He is the Word. He is the revelation of God. And then one final name, verse 16. On His robe and His thigh, He has a name written, and the name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is a public name. It's written in a place where everyone is able to see it. And it's a name that emphasizes His complete and absolute lordship and sovereignty. Well, there's one other thing that's important to notice about the coming of Christ here, not just His appearance in His name, names, but also His companions. Jesus doesn't come alone. Verse 14 tells us that. The armies of heaven, 
arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Some think these are angels who are coming with Christ. I happen to believe that these are believers uh, because of the similarity to the description that we find of the bride earlier in this chapter in verse 8, where it said there as well that the bride is clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. Jesus comes riding a white conquering horse. And we're going to gather with him riding a similar white horse. Because people of God remember that when Jesus comes, and in fact already now by faith, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And so Jesus comes to conquer. He is the conquering Christ. And we come to conquer along with him. So this great picture here of the coming Lord Jesus Christ as He comes for us, His people. But there's a second thing in this text that we ought to notice, and that's not just the coming Christ, or the conquering Christ, but we also ought to see the coming conquest that Jesus brings. And this is what the picture of chapter 19 and of the coming of Christ is all about. That He is coming to conquer And the descriptions of Jesus that we've already seen in this text, they're not pictures, are they, of a therapeutic Savior, but they are pictures of a conquering King. And that, in fact, is the stated purpose for Christ's coming. You see it again, verse 11. The one who was sitting on the horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We have to take this in because this is the description of the coming of Christ. This is the truth. This is the essential lesson that that John is bringing us in the vision that God wants us to take with us. That when Jesus comes, He is not coming to form a peace treaty. But when Jesus returns, He is coming to defeat and to destroy His enemies. And so verse 15 tells us that He is coming to strike down the nations. And He is going to rule them with a rod of iron. He's coming with a rod that smashes things. That pulverizes things when the rod comes down upon it. He treads, as the verse continues on, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so He is coming to crush those who have resisted God. Jesus is going to come again to crush those who have rebelled against Him. And people of God, that's what you see in the rest of the passage. This coming conquest of Jesus is described with two different images or two different pictures. The first is a picture of a supper. And so this is verse 17 and following. The early part of the chapter describes a wedding reception, you know, a joyful event, a festive occasion, a wedding reception for King Jesus and His bride. And there's an invitation that goes along with that 
wedding supper, that marriage supper of the Lamb, blessed are those who are invited to it. But as we move into this part of the chapter, the image changes. And it's not a wedding feast that is described here, but it's a great supper of God, and this supper is not nearly so celebratory. Because this isn't a wedding supper that you celebrate the union of the bride and the groom, but this is a ghoulish, grotesque feast. This is not a sit-down meal, but this is a roadside smorgasbord. And it's birds that are invited to come. Birds are invited to come to eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men and horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, both free and slave, both small and great. People from the greatest to the least. All kinds of people. This is the kind of picture or scene that you see when you're driving along the highway. And you come across a dead deer or a, some other kind of dead animal. And there are birds that are gathering around it and you might drive by and they might fly away for a time and then they come back to pick all of the bones clean. That's the image of Jesus' coming conquest. As we said already, verse 17 calls this the great supper of God. And so the images of the enemies of God being picked apart, defeated, slaughtered, torn to pieces, this is what will occur when Jesus comes back again. And so the coming conquest is this image, this image of a great supper. And then there's another image, and that is the image that you find following that in the rest of the verses of the chapter, and that is an image of a war. So verse 19, John says, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So now it's the kings of the earth and the armies, not just birds, that gather together. And they gather together to take up war against Christ, against His army. Jesus comes to conquer, but there's a pushback on the part of the enemies of God and of Christ. Friends, this is, I think, what we call in uh, sometimes last times language Armageddon. This is the final great battle between Jesus and His enemies. A battle where it, it may seem that God's people have no chance to win but are delivered in the end by God. This battle is the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy that we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39. A battle there that, a promised battle there by a pagan leader, Gog of the land of Magog against the people of God who seem helpless to win. And then God comes and He rescues His people. And you see that Revelation 19 is a fulfillment of that great battle, that great prophetic battle, because the things that are said in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are 
incredibly similar to what we find here in Revelation 19. And so in Ezekiel 39, we find words like this, assemble birds and you will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes. Here's the same scene in Revelation 19, but here is the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke about. Jesus coming to defeat His enemies. Notice that in the last days it is the beast and the false prophet particularly here that are described as defeated. There's sort of a build-up in these final chapters of the book of Revelation. You have to take a look at those sometime. Revelation 18 and 19 and 20, a build-up of those who are defeated by Christ. Sort of a ticking off or a clicking off of all the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 18, it's Babylon, the great, a picture of cultural influence and opposition that deceives the people of God by its glamour and luxury and culture. It's Babylon that is defeated. You come to chapter 19, now it's the beast. Anti-God government that persecutes and oppresses the people of God or anti-God power that we see in sort of governmental places but coming in an oppressive way against the people of God, the beast is destroyed. And then comes the false prophet. Not anti-God power against the people of God, but anti-God religious deception, false teaching that deceives the people of God. And so you see one enemy coming outside of the church and pressing down against God's people to to cause the church to cave or to crumble or to compromise if it would. And then another enemy, next time not from outside the church, but from within the church, causing the church, if it, if it could happen, to, to fall and to be deceived and to believe false things. And so Babylon falls and the beast falls and the false prophet falls and soon in chapter 20 the dragon that all of them serve will fall. This is what is going to happen when Christ comes. A final battle, end times assault on the church and against Christ that seems as if the church may lose. And then Jesus saves and he is victorious. People of God notice that there's hardly any detail to the war at all. It says, just says the beast was captured, the false prophet, who in its presence had done these signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and so on. There's no description about how long the battle lasts. There's no gory details about what happens in the battle. There's hardly anything at all written about it. And friends, it's because as if it is so short, there's nothing to talk about. Satan's assault on the church is only for a short time. It seems long to us. But God says it will be brief, and Jesus and His army will be victorious and the beast and the false prophet thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And all who follow them, killed, 
with the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. All Jesus will have to do is speak a word of judgment. Depart from me. And they are defeated and destroyed forever. And on his word, they are devoured by the birds of the air, as verse 21 says, dying an eternal, horrendous, final death. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Revelation, summarizes these verses like this. He says, The last battle is over, the Lamb has triumphed, and so the wrath of God is finished. That's what will happen when Jesus comes. Now, people of God, this is to be for our comfort. It is an awful, awful scene. But this is meant to be for the comfort of God's people. Because Jesus is coming as conquering. Our husband, our king, our Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to be victorious. And he is coming to make war. And he is coming to judge. But that will be our victory. You might think about how the early church needed this. Those who initially heard from John and heard this revelation from him. Early Christians who were dying under the hand of Caesar. And they needed to know that there is somebody greater in charge of this world than Caesar. So people would go around and, of course, claim Caesar as Lord. They needed to know somebody greater in charge in this world that their blood would be avenged, that justice would be accomplished, that their salvation would come. They needed to know that. And I'd say to you today, is that any less true today? Babylon is powerful. The lure of worldviews and cultural influences that tend to drive us away from devotion to God. You can see it in media and culture and music and apps and movies and many other places. So powerful and strong. But God is going to bring Babylon down. Jesus is going to be victorious. The beast, anti-Christian oppression, persecution, legal pressure, the removal of freedom of worship, all, all the kinds of stuff that we we begin to sort of tend to feel today that threatened believers from the outside is going to fall. The beast is going to come down. And the false prophet, pressure from the inside, false teaching found within the church that can erode the faith of God's people. You don't feel it from the outside, but sneaky on the inside will be brought down and thrown into the lake of fire. And so God's word to us tonight is be comforted and be faithful and persevere and keep your eyes looking ahead toward the future, toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who will conquer and long for His appearing, long for Him to come back, pray for His coming and be faithful and faithful and faithful to the very end because your Savior is coming and your redemption is drawing near as the Scriptures say. Jesus is coming back. He is coming to conquer. 
And so I'd ask you tonight, have you been conquered by Him? Because you see, there of course are two ways to be conquered by Christ. You can be either be conquered by Jesus at the end of time and judged and to follow along with God's enemies, follow them into the lake of fire. You can be conquered by Christ that way. Having have not bowed the knee to Jesus, have not claimed Him as your own, not trusted in Him for salvation and life, and you will be conquered by Christ, or you can be conquered by His mercy and His grace and His love. Submitting to Him and confessing your sin and rebellion and pledging yourself to the husband and king who loves you. Giving your life and devotion to Him. And of course, that is the only way to be conquered and to avoid His stern judgment. People of God, Jesus is coming. He's coming for us. Don't know when, but He's coming. And the early church knew it. And they made this cry, didn't they? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And Jesus testifies to it at the end of the Bible. And He says, yes, I'm coming. Yes, hear my word, I'm coming. And we say, amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Father, we've opened your word tonight and we've opened your word to a graphic picture of what will happen when Jesus comes back again. On the one hand, it ought to fill us with a reverent fear as we see Christ coming to conquer, to judge to make war, to defeat His enemies. And it also brings to our mind a, a certain comfort because the Jesus who is coming, if we are believers and trusting in Him, has already been judged in our place and we won't have to fear His judgment. What we can look forward to is coming for us. And so we pray, Lord, that we will live with expectation, we will live faithfully, we will persevere, we will live with a longing, a longing for you to come back again in a life that is faithful until you return. We thank you that you are the King, and we rejoice in that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.